Live from WNUR News, I'm Nick Song. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's Friday, February 12th. Tonight, how the pandemic is changing the way Northwestern sports are covered. Part of just being on a computer screen and using Zoom is just a little awkward. And I always felt like when it was in person, it was just more natural. A look back on Chicago's coldest winters. There are days in the middle of a Chicago winter, but it is best to just give up. Witness the 20th of January, 1985. Movies releasing straight to digital and what it means for the film industry. I think it's radically changing the industry and I have concerns. And Plant Parenthood. Yes, Plant Parenthood. It's a lot about the vibes. Um, you know, just the aesthetic of having a lot of plants around and appreciating their value. Stay tuned. First, we're talking about press conferences. Not a game, we're talking about press conferences. Here's WNUR reporter Matt Shelton to explain how the pandemic is changing the way journalists covered Northwestern sports. Students running and working for outlets covering Northwestern athletics have had to continue to adapt to pandemic restrictions on press conferences and interviews. Medill Jr. Leah Simakopoulos has been a writer for Inside NU, Northwestern's SB Nation affiliate, since 2018. When the COVID-19 pandemic started, Simakopoulos had just begun her tenure as co-editor-in-chief and had to lead her publication as coverage shifted dramatically. Simakopoulos said, I mean, it was it was a big adjustment. I think, you know, the biggest thing for us was when I took over, there were no sports happening for a good, like, six or seven months. And that was really tough, having to, to find things to write about um, in the summer and in the spring when there were no live sports. But, you know, we made it work. We got creative. Medill Jr. Michael Fitzpatrick started writing for Northwestern's Rivals affiliate, Wildcat Report, last year. He has always had to deal with COVID adjustments at his new job and said that it could be more difficult than his previous reporting. I think the press conferences were harder just because they weren't there and it was harder to get like emotion from coaches or players just because it was over Zoom. So it was harder to get better quotes than if you had been in person, I'd say. The transition of press conferences from in-person to online has led to some terse interactions between reporters and coaches. One example is Duke head men's basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski snapping at a student reporter after a loss on January 23rd to Louisville. Coach, I'm just curious as to what, what the next step forward here is for the team as you guys move into another week of basketball. Yeah, why don't we just evaluate this game? You know, I'm not into what our next step forward is right now. We just finished the hard-fought game. Yeah, I don't know if, like, when you, what, what, what's your major? What's your major at Duke? What's your hardest class? Econ. Okay. So say you just had the toughest econ test in the world. And when you walked out, somebody asked you, what's your next step? Uh, you see what I mean? Does that, you have some empathy and, and, you know, just give us time to evaluate this game and then we'll we'll figure out just like we always try to do. Northwestern has not had any instances of coaches snapping at reporters after losses. In fact, in the case of Northwestern head men's basketball coach Chris Collins, his availability has actually increased in the Zoom era. Simicopoulos said, One nice thing, we never had press conference conferences when they were on the road in the past and now we do get to hear from Chris Collins. Um, so that 
is the one thing that the Zoom era has allowed us to do. Simicopoulos and Fitzgerald both admitted that press conferences over Zoom have a different feel and environment than before the pandemic. Do you think the quality of question and answer has increased, decreased, or held steady in the Zoom era? You know, I think, like, in some ways, decreased. I think, like, we've talked, like, with Inside NU, we talk a lot about this. And I think, like, part of just being on a computer screen and using Zoom is just a little awkward. And I always felt like when it was in person, it was just more natural because you're all in the same room, like, in the same space. Like, you walk in, you say hi to the coach. But when you're on Zoom, you don't really have that same interaction. And it's always awkward when people unmute and, like, you don't know what to say. You don't know how if you say, like, hi, coach, how are you? Like, congrats on the win. Like, sorry about the loss, something like that. But it's just a little less natural when it's, like, you know, you only have like a brief amount of time where you're speaking. So I think in terms of like question and answer, I feel like I've been able to get my question, at least during football season, especially I felt that I was able to get my questions and uh, answered pretty like normally. But I think the whole process sometimes just feels a little more uncomfortable. Fitzgerald echoes this sentiment. Yeah, I think it's just harder to have like a connection, I guess. Like it seems more... I don't know if professional is the right word in a Zoom, but if you're talking to someone face-to-face, you can have more of like a friendly conversation, like there's two people talking over Zoom. It seems almost more like a a work meeting kind of thing. Another COVID restriction for journalists beyond just Zoom press conferences is limited to no post-practice interaction with athletes, a policy that Asimikopoulos said makes finding stories harder. I think like the big difference that I've noticed with basketball is – and also football. Um, in the past, we would have media availabilities. So like after practice, you'd be able to go to Welsh Ryan and just like stop any players and talk to them for a story you're writing. And that definitely hasn't been the case this year. And it's been a little more restricted. So it's a little harder when you're trying to write a story. It has also been trickier to ask follow-up questions. Before the pandemic, so long as a reporter had the microphone, they had the floor. I guess, yeah, there was probably more opportunity for follow-up questions because you would just be given a microphone and you kind of pass the microphone off to the next person. And as long as you held the microphone, you could kind of ask as much as you wanted. Now that Northwestern Athletics runs the Zoom interviews, Fitzpatrick says reporters have to be quick with their next question or the moderator will move on to the next person in the queue. The guy would, the athletic community would jump in right in and move to the next guy. So you kind of have to speak up right away once they finished your first question in order to not get your second question cut off. As basketball season winds down, students working for or running publications like Wildcat Report and Inside NU deserve recognition for adapting to the pandemic's challenges and still providing consistent Northwestern athletics content. For WNUR, this is Matthew Shelton. Here in Evanston, the past couple weeks have been a little chilly. Okay, that's a lie. It's cold as ice outside. But how does this year stack up to winners in the past? WNUR's resident weatherman, Linus Huller, to give a history lesson on winter in the Windy City. There's so much snow. It's so cold. What a bad winter. Those are remarks you've likely heard a few times from your friends and colleagues over the last few weeks. No surprise, considering one of Chicagoans' favorite pastimes seems to be to complain about the city's weather. It builds character, they'll tell you. But how bad is it really? How does the snow measure up to normal years? And are the temperatures this year worse than usual, or do we always simply forget just how bad last winter really was? 
Let's take a dive into Chicago's wintry climate history. Now, whether you are driving or walking, the heavy snowfall will be significant. Winter weather advisory, snow and frigid temperatures. Way below zero later this week. The wind started picking up, the snow started blowing. Y'all, this is Chicago. Chicago is no stranger to crazy weather. In 1967, a blizzard dropped a whole 23 inches of snow onto the city in just over 24 hours. The blizzard came as part of a longer cold spell, with temperatures staying below freezing in the city for 43 consecutive days. The windy city of Chicago is white as well as windy. In 1979, the snow even reached a depth of 29 inches. The absolute low point for Chicago, at least in terms of temperature, came nearly two decades later when, in January of 1985, the temperatures plummeted to a frigid minus 27 degrees Fahrenheit, or minus 33 centigrade. There are days in the middle of a Chicago winter when it is best to just give up. January 2019's polar vortex, still fresh in the mind of Evanstonians and even some Northwestern students, was comparatively mild at just minus 23 degrees Fahrenheit, or minus 31 Celsius. But it's all about the wind chill, I hear you say. Fear not, for there are stats for this, too. On January 24th, 1983, Chicago shivered through an absolutely freezing wind chill of minus 83 Fahrenheit, minus 64 Celsius. But what makes our weather here so wild? There's a combination of various factors that play a role. The biggest is that Chicago lies in what is known as a continental climate zone. This means that it is far away from any oceans. Because water is able to absorb a great deal of energy before it changes its temperature, it acts as a buffer that reduces the fluctuations in the air temperature around it. So, it will keep the air cooler in summer and warmer in winter. Lake Michigan is a big body of water and it does influence Chicago's weather, as we'll see later, but it is a far cry from an ocean and so its mildening effect on the temperature is less pronounced. Land heats up and cools off much faster than water, changing the temperature of the air that lies above it more rapidly and extremely as well. Chicago, located in the middle of a continent, gets to feel these large temperature fluctuations. In short, it's because Chicago has a lake shore instead of an ocean coast that our winters are so cold and our summers so hot. While Chicago's average monthly temperatures range from 24 Fahrenheit in January to 74 Fahrenheit in July, Rome's, which lies at the same latitude, only go from 47 to 74 because it is near the sea. But why does Chicago get so much snow? The short answer, and a bit of a cop-out, is that it really doesn't. There are plenty of regions of the US that receive way more snowfall than we do. The Atlantic Northeast, Colorado, and our neighbors in Wisconsin and Michigan in an average winter all get much more snow than we do. But Chicago does have a local advantage that often gives it higher snow totals than the rest of Illinois, the lake. The lake effect is what happens when the wind blows across the lake, picking up moisture from its surface and replenishing the clouds. It's the reason why Michigan gets so much more snow than we do, as the predominant direction of the winds is westerly. But when it shifts to blow from the northeast, bringing cold polar air with it, like right now, the snow is dumped onto Chicago and Evanston instead. But how does this winter compare to what is normal? For a while, this winter didn't look that extreme at all. December and January brought hardly any snow and both were well above average in terms of temperatures by more than 5 degrees Fahrenheit. December brought less than 3 inches of snow in total and January stayed mostly snow free until the very end as well. February so far has redeemed itself. As of now, it's actually well below the average temperature by almost 10 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's important to remember that it's still early in the month. Its low so far of minus 7 Fahrenheit or minus 22 Celsius also isn't too shabby. 
and it finally brought some snow. More than 14 inches have already fallen this month, exceeding the monthly average by more than 50%, and more is likely on its way. For now, it looks like bundling up and staying inside will remain the order of the day, as the cold spell likely isn't going anywhere in the next week. And remember, layers like an ogre. I'm Linus Hurler for WNUR News. In the olden days, the only way to watch the latest superhero blockbuster from your couch was to drag it with you to the theater. Today, more and more films are being released straight to streaming services. WNUR's Trevor Duggins on what this change may mean for the film industry. With theaters being shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic, streaming services like HBO Max, Disney Plus, and Netflix have become the premier destination for many of the newest blockbuster movies releasing. But how will this change affect the film industry moving forward? I spoke with Kyle Henry, a professor at Northwestern School of Communications, about his thoughts on streaming and the future of filmmaking. My name is Kyle Henry. I'm a filmmaker and associate professor at Northwestern University in the radio TV film department. I think it's radically changing the industry and I have concerns. My first concern is it's going to lead to a consolidation of power in the hands of fewer actors, players, strengthening, for example, the hands of, you know, kind of near streaming, you know, monopolies like Netflix, Amazon, uh, Disney Plus, maybe Apple, and then like everyone else. We consolidate or reconsolidate around um, uh, three mega streaming platforms um, as our way of uh, the prime way that we watch media in this country. I worry that we're going to return to a days where we had like only three TV networks. So what does that do for a diverse range of voices being heard? To get a better idea of how the pandemic has changed viewing habits, I spoke with two Northwestern students, Eric Mao and Tamara Rad, to hear about how much they streamed, who they watched with, and how they feel about theaters being closed. I stream at least once a week, like a Disney Plus show. Uh, it can vary depending on if I have a show I'm like binging at the time on either platform. I'm more of a TV shows person, so it's mostly streaming TV shows um, rather than movies. I do it with my friends sometimes, and we've been doing it a lot recently over like Netflix party and those um, streaming party services. But the pandemic's impact on the film industry goes far beyond the bottom line of large distributors like Netflix and Disney+. The ones that have been hit worst are the local independently owned movie theaters around the country. And a lot of those small mom and pop theaters anchor their communities. They, they have a knock-on effect. They show regional filmmakers first work. So they might support um, their community through film festivals, whether it's like the Chicago uh, Jewish Film Festival or others that are located in specific neighborhoods and anchor those neighborhoods and provide a place for community. Um, I think it sucks because I like, I enjoyed watching movies in theaters. I thought it made the experience more fun, especially to go with like friends or something. The thing is, so I watch when I'm streaming, it's mostly shows. I do like to watch movies, but I love watching them in theaters. So that has been, I think it's been really sad that we haven't been able to do that. Because um, I feel like it's really a big part of the experience actually be in a movie theater watching the movie rather than um, streaming it 
like on your laptop or just at home. So I think it's been very frustrating not being able to do that. And the one great thing about box office was that the numbers were all transparent. All theaters required that you show this is what um, you have made in ticket sales, and those were aggregated. And they were published, you know, in the newspapers. So there'd be breakout, you know, films and works. I'm curious right now, you know, Netflix, Amazon, others, they're not required to actually show and in a transparent way, who's actually watching what. You're just told by Netflix, trust us. You know, these are the top shows now streaming on Netflix. And although the short-term effects of the pandemic can be seen right now, the future of in-person viewing at theaters and festivals is still very unclear among film lovers. I think if they open them up and have people be masked all the time and maybe um, just allow them to book like every other seat instead of, having, uh, instead of having everyone sitting next to each other, I feel that it might be doable if they, st- I mean, if things start getting better soon and cases stop rising and people start getting vaccinated, um, maybe that's how they would start up again. I think it's probably changed change the landscape forever, but I don't know how. We still don't know if after maybe the pandemic will be mostly over with by November and people will be back in these community spaces and maybe they will recover um, and maybe will constitute something that looks like the old world. Um, but we just don't know. For WNUR News, this is Trevor Duggins. Ah, plants. They're like dogs, except green, they don't make noise, and actually they're nothing like dogs. Still, they mean a whole lot to their owners here at Northwestern. Reporter Sarah Cadora on the perks of being a wallflower. Owner, that is. This is my roommate Aaron. My name is Aaron Cotter. Aaron is a proud plant parent. It's a lot about the vibes. Um, you know, just the aesthetic of having a lot of plants around and appreciating their value for making me happy. <laughs> if you had to guess how many plants are in this house, dead or alive, <laughs> what would you guess? Good question. Um, Maybe like 20? No way. What do you think? Way more. What, what's your guess? Like 35. 35? We have eucalyptus hanging from our shower head. Yes, we do. I Also dead, but yeah. <laughs> I counted, and I was actually exactly right. There are 35. Four alive, 26 dead, and five in questionable condition. You see, Aaron isn't a particularly good plant parent. I love them. I just don't express that love through taking care of them all the time. In April of last year, Reuters reported that U.S. seed companies were seeing record sales. Stuck at home because of the coronavirus pandemic, many Americans were taking up a new hobby, gardening. But with limited outdoor space in apartments and dorms, Northwestern students like Aaron stocked up on indoor potted plants, with easy-to-care-for succulents dominating the mix. Um, so I have, like, all little house plants. Most of them are succulents. Um, some of them are like spider plants. One of them's like a little ivy dude. I don't know a lot about them. They're just like little and cute and they just sit in my apartment. That's Raya Muller. Her mom is an active plant parent. She wanted me to have 
plant for air quality and like happiness or something. Raya's not as passionate a plant parent as Erin, but she's better at keeping her plant children alive. I have nine alive plants and I've killed four. Raya lives alone and says that she would certainly recommend the plant parent lifestyle to other Northwestern students. I live in a small studio, so I think it's nice to have them around. Um, They look nice. I want like bigger plants. Um, I think those would look cute too. It just makes the the space more lively, especially because it's like gray and sad outside. It's a strange kind of parenthood. We water them, we give them shelter, but if one dies, eh, no big deal. I wanted to talk to a really good plant parent, someone with both Aaron's passion and Raya's watering track record, to see if they shared the same indifference toward their children's mortality. I asked around and found student Josh Perry. I have a jade plant. His name is Tom. Uh, I've had him since like junior or senior year of high school, and we're best friends. Josh is, without a doubt, a very involved plant parent. Tom is kind of short and stout. I had to trim him a little bit because he was getting top heavy. So he's kind of like um, a little bit closer to the ground than he was before. But, um, you know, very round leaves, very like, (laughs) I don't know, he's very like full bodied. Um, I, I think I sound like a psychopath right now. Tom isn't just another plant to Josh. He's a connection to home. Well, Tom is actually basically a gift from a very sweet neighbor I had. Um, she was this like old lady back in my hometown and she gave me like a cutting of her jade plant. So I have treasured him ever since. Um, if he got sick or like froze to death or I forgot to water him for an extended period of time and he died, I would be very sad. I think I would even be devastated. I'm not sure how I would cope. I guess what I've learned from reporting on household greenery is that there's no one right way to be a plant parent. If you cherish your one baby, great. If their green keeps you sane during gray Evanston winters, awesome. If your plant children are plastic, amazing. You probably won't kill them. But if you're content living in a literal plant graveyard like I do, that's cool too. Our plants are really here to take care of us, not the other way around. For WNUR News, I'm Sarah Cadora. And now for this week's roundup. Northwestern University officials announced a plan to meet with current and former cheerleaders to offer support and listen to concerns. The action is in response to a lawsuit filed against the university. It alleged NU cheerleaders were subject to sexual harassment and discrimination on the team. The Chicago Teachers Union approved a deal with the city to reopen Chicago public classrooms. Nearly 70% of CPS teachers approved the plan on Wednesday. Pre-K and cluster students already returned to school on Thursday. K through fifth graders will return March 1st, while sixth through eighth graders will return on March 8th. No date has yet been set for high school students to return. And Northwestern's new Chief Diversity Officer, Robin Means Coleman, introduced herself at a faculty senate meeting this week. In her speech, Coleman said she will execute her role with commitments to inclusion, diversity, equity, and accountability. Some faculty members voiced frustration over what they perceive as a failure by administrators to live up to their commitments on inclusion. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. 
For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. Our producer today is Zach McCrary. Our reporters are Matthew Shelton, Linus Huller, Trevor Duggins, and Sarah Cadora. From all of us here at WNUR, I'm Nick Song, saying thanks for listening. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on our Spotify, Google Podcast, and SoundCloud at WNUR.org. Your next news break will be Monday, February 15th. Now, back to schedule programming.